Welcome to Good Jewish Lover from the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem, where we explore the Jewish textual tradition to see what it can teach us about how to love each other better. On this episode, we are turning the tables, so to speak, and I am joined wonderfully by Faith Leer, the new Chief Innovation Officer at Pardes, to talk actually about this podcast, how we came to build Good Jewish Lover, and what it means to look at Jewish texts with an eye towards enhancing how we love other complicated human beings. So, Faith, welcome. I'm so excited to get to learn with you and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, I have a question for you, actually. Yeah. We can jump right in. Absolutely. The one thing I love about your podcast is that you really ground us all in a text. And so, I wanted to ask you today— Is there a text that can help orient your listeners to how you think about this podcast and your approach? Yeah, there there are so many. And there's maybe to start, there's just a little little snippet from uh, Psachim, from Mesechet Psachim that we'll get into. And so just to remind us all, the way the Talmud works is it's essentially a extended conversation over literally hundreds of years about how it is that Jewish people do live or should live or might try to live, and it flows like a conversation. So in the Talmud, there are stories and jokes and recipes and normative things. You should do this. You shouldn't do this. And it's all mixed in in a flow of conversation as the rabbis, really over a span of hundreds of years, try to figure out what it is to live in the presence of the divine. And so Psachim is actually one of the sections of the Talmud. And in it, there's this small section. I'll do this one actually first in uh, Hebrew and then in English. Amar Rami Barav Yuda, Amar Rav. Miyom shenignu sefer yuchasin tashish kochan shel chachamim bekacha meor enehem. So Rami, the son of Yuda, says in the name of Rav. So we have a lineage of a teaching here. From the day that the book of genealogies, even the book of relationships, perhaps, there was this book. And from the day that this book was hidden, from the day that this book was no longer read, was was lost, so to speak, the strength of the sages was diminished and the light went out of their eyes. And many, many years later, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, the teacher of many of my teachers, wrote in an amazing book, Torah Mina Shemayim Ba'aspaklaria Hadorot, Torah from Heaven in the Mirror of the Generations, he talked about the power of Agadah, the power of the stories in the Talmud. And I know for me, I didn't grow up particularly observant, particularly plugged into Judaism. My understanding of what Judaism was, in part, was basically a bunch of rules saying, shut up, stand up, sit down, do this, don't do this. And it it had no connection to anything going on inside of me. And part of what I have come to appreciate is how much richer the textual tradition is. And it's really how I came to embrace Judaism. So Heschel writes about this book of genealogies, this book of lineages. He quotes this part from Psachim as talking about this is part of the Agadah. This is part of the stories, the legends, the myths, the tales that make up the Talmud. And that these stories are, in many ways, the flowering of all of these texts. And that when that's lost, as this text from Pesachim suggests, when that's lost, that sense of the soul, that sense of relationships, 
our strength is diminished. The light goes out of our eyes. And I would say not only is Judaism diminished, but we ourselves as people are diminished. And engaging with these stories is in many ways one of the most life-giving parts of the Jewish tradition for me. Mm. Tell me if that makes any sense. It totally makes sense. And what I love about that is it's really acknowledging that stories really represent real people's lives. And that a story, you know, it could be extrapolated and feel distant and feel abstract, but actually it's the lineage of a family and a particular dynamics between mother and daughter and son and brother and uncle and all of those generational things. So I think it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I would love to hear more about, you know, what's the story behind this podcast? I know for me, when you told me that you were planning it and you told me the name, I was like, wow, this is so great. Real Torah, you know, for our lives, for things that are so relevant for us. And, you know, it takes a lot of time building a podcast, which we're learning. So <laughs> I'd love to hear more about, you know, what made you want to invest so much time in bringing in the folks that you've brought in and orienting us around the Torah relationships? So in many ways, the genesis of this is when I started learning Torah seriously for the first time at Pardes, probably 23 years ago. I was in a class taught by Baruch Feldstern, who's an amazing, amazing teacher. And it was a story about the binding of Isaac and what happened there. And Midrash is basically fan fiction, right? It's the rabbis taking the characters from the Torah and telling new stories about them, imagining things that aren't explicitly there in the text. And so this Midrash imagines what happens when Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain for this sacrifice. But the Midrash's imagination is caught not by what's happening up on the mountain, but by these two lads who are left down at the bottom. Mm. And the text you know, says that Abraham took Isaac and these two lads and then doesn't really mention them again on the journey. So the Midrash basically is like, huh, who are these two lads? What's their story? What's going on with them? And the Midrash imagines that it's Ishmael and Eliezer, Abraham's servant and Abraham's first son from Hagar. And the Midrash imagines these two characters arguing with each other, being fully cognizant that Abraham is taking Isaac up the mountain to kill him. And what they're arguing about is now who will be the favorite. They've always known that Isaac is the favorite. And now that Abraham is going to kill Isaac, they're arguing who will now be the beloved of the murderous patriarch, right? Well, that's drama right there. (laughs) Yeah, it's a super intense story. And for me, reading that for the first time, I thought, oh, I'm in that story. Right. Mm -hmm. Without getting lost in the particulars, I had a a somewhat bumpier childhood. And that sense of, wait a minute, I can see myself in that text. That sense of like, there is an extremely toxic character and I'm hungering for the affection of that toxic character. Even though that's not the language of the text, I could see myself there. And that for me was a revelation. My experience of Judaism really in a lot of significant ways before that point was as the, uh, you know, redheaded stepchild at family seders. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know when to say. I didn't know when to sit. I didn't know when to stand. And overall had the sense that Judaism was for people who had their lives together. Judaism was for people who could sit up straight and put the napkin on their lap in the right way. And my family was too messed up. I was too messed up. This wasn't for me. But I read that story and Baruch taught us that story about Abraham and the lads arguing. And I found myself there and it gave me a space 
to talk about my own heart and my own experience in community with other people in a way that felt safe and community building. Wow. And so fast forward 20 odd years, a lot of the work I do with couples in talking about relationships and talking about the dynamics of what it is to be in relationship with each other, sometimes coming into those issues by way of the text, by way of the story, opens up things that might otherwise not be opened. And so I wanted to do more broadly what I was doing with folks individually and open up some of these texts as a way of seeing ourselves and thinking about how we relate to each other in ways that can otherwise be a little difficult. Yes. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. And you know, it's beautiful because it goes back to where we started. It's when you understand yourself as a part of an ongoing story that started long before you can make you feel less lonely, right? I think just seeing yourself the way you described as a, as a youth, being able to see the messiness of your own life in the text and that it was you know, an invitation to you to jump in and to not feel ashamed of those places, but to say, wow, those are normal human psychological reactions to trauma and to dynamics that exist. And that was in our most beloved texts and our most beloved patriarch. And that so I too have a place here. I think that that definitely makes sense. And is I think a lot of people could relate to, I'll just say personally, I would say one of the biggest parts of Judaism that's been inspiring to me along my journey since Fridays has been the fact that we can hold space for that, yeah. right? That it's, if you look at our, our matriarchs and patriarchs, they're not all good. You know, they are, they're real people in that there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of shadow side and being able to, to engage in that feels really authentic and really honest. Well, I think that is true both to the texts themselves, right? In the interior structure of the text, right? In the, in the dysfunctions of really all of the biblical characters, but also in the lived experience of learning Torah, right? And being in Chavruta. I was coming from, whatever, coming from my background, but just sort of a normal American background in that regard. You start a conversation with someone, what do you do for work? How do you feel about the Yankees? You know, there's a certain surface level of conversation. And to be able to have a community built on what are you learning? Where are you going deep? Opened up a whole different arena. And part of what I love about studying text, particularly studying agotic text, studying the, the stories and the legends, is that it's a way to ease in to some psychologically difficult things. It would be a weird thing to say, hey, nice to meet you. Let me tell you about, you know, whatever, my family trauma and my psychological background and how I relate to my mother and all of that. Would it be so weird? Isn't that what you're doing? <laughs> well, yes, yes. But I, I've come to that. Uh, it's been a journey to that. And the texts have helped tremendously in that journey, right? Because sometimes we can see things in the way that these characters interact with each other that becomes a, well, a prism, an aspect laria, an optic through which we can see ourselves. But sometimes telling the truth slant allows other things to happen, right? And so when we talk about dynamics in a relationship head on, so how's your relationship with your spouse? Well, it can... You can actually shut down. But to look at a text and see ourselves reflected in the text, it can open up by coming in slant. And I think that's both a function of the structure of the text and a function of the structure of how we study text like this in conversation. Yes, beautiful. So, Brett, you talk you know, a lot about relationships and the study of Torah, and I'm curious if there is a time when 
the relationships that were born out of the study of Torah themselves, either with a kabruta or a teacher, really something emerged from there that was unexpected for you. Yeah. What I'm thinking of actually is my wife had been seriously ill at one point. And when she was, Mish Hammerkasoy, who is a teacher, a friend, a beloved member of the faculty at Pardes, came up to visit me when she was in New York. And you know, I live about 150 kilometers north of New York City. I'm not exactly in New York. And it meant so much when Mish came up and visited me in really this incredibly dark hour. Mish had been one of my first teachers of Torah when I was at Pardes. And I learned from her and her husband Yoni and her kids, not just in the classroom where I obviously learned uh, tremendous Torah from Mish, but at their Shabbos table, at their home, at their celebrations. And I felt so embraced then, and I still feel incredibly connected to Misha and her family now, uh, many years later. But her coming up to visit me in this incredibly dark hour and offer me some love and support and comfort meant so much. It felt like, right, this is why we study Torah, to teach us how to live in relationship in a right way. And I was so grateful in that moment to be in that relationship in that right way and felt so supported and grateful for that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious, is there anything that hasn't yet come up or that you're still really curious about or something that is new percolating based on conversations that you've had around relationships and the dynamics and things that we can learn from the Torah? So traditionally, we think about Torah being given, like if we were drawing this, like the line coming from heaven down to earth, right? The Torah was revealed and given to the people, and we do the Torah because that's what God said. And that's that's there. <laughs> that's certainly a framework. I tend to think about Torah as if I was drawing the line in the opposite direction. It's not the line coming from up on the top of Sinai down to the people. It's from the people down on the ground up to Sinai. Or to put differently, the Torah, in my mind, isn't a record of what God told the people what to do. To my mind, the Torah is a record of the people's yearning for God and the people trying to figure out how to access, how to come towards God. And that has been recorded in all of the different books and literature of our tradition. But that the fundamental question of Torah isn't Torah. The fundamental question of Torah is life, of how do we live? And the richest parts of the Torah, the richest parts of the tradition are, to my mind, the ones that dive into how do we live? How do we live in relationship with other people? How do we live in relationship to the divine? How do we live in relationship to the earth? How do we live in relationship to ourselves? And so I love studying texts on the inside, so to speak, of geeking out on the, the roots of the words and what the commentators say and the intertextual connections. And that's great. I love the text as text. But what I'm excited to do is look at the text as a lens for life. And so the people I've been excited to invite on the show are folks who are thoughtful about life, thoughtful about how we live in relationship with ourselves and with others, and hoping and experiencing that with their eyes and their insights, new things would come out of the text that would help us understand how to live better. Or to put all of that much more simply, I think the text is most powerful as a tool for reflecting on life, and I look for guests who can help us reflect on how to live, not reflect on the text itself. Beautifully put. Thank you. That was really beautiful. I look at that story of Abraham and Isaac, right, the, the binding of Isaac, and 
I thankfully can't resonate with that story immediately in the sense of, um, you know, literally uh, binding one's child, God forbid. But that sense of what am I prioritizing? What am I listening to? What voices am I putting first? And it's a lot easier to be horrified at that story than to recognize my own inclinations to do the same. And I could let myself off the hook and be like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, holding a knife to my son's throat, God forbid. So I'm doing great. And yeah, I mean, that's a win. If you're going to set the bar there, that's good. But if I look a little deeper and say, wait a minute, Abraham was listening to some voices that were saying, this is more important. What you're doing outside of the relationship is more important than inside the relationship. Do I listen to those voices sometimes? Yeah. Do I sacrifice things for those voices? Yeah. How can I be aware of that? And is sometimes that the right choice? Yes. And is sometimes that maybe not the right choice? Yes. I don't think it's right. I think that's the complexity of that story is there isn't a right or a wrong. It's it's very much based on context. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the way the text, like the fact that Avram Avinu is Avram Avinu and this happened, it's not so clear cut if it was a wrong choice or a right choice. I mean, there's lots of interpretations on both ends, but so too in our own lives. It's not so clear cut. It's not so clear cut, although I confess I'm I'm very partial to Levinas's reading of the Akedah, where he says basically the Akedah had a couple of parts, right? There was the part where Abraham heard the voice saying, take your son, your only son, offer him as a sacrifice. I'm paraphrasing Levinas here. Basically, that's there's nothing remarkable in hearing that voice. Every two-bit lunatic with a AK-47 around the world hears that voice. I hear the voice of God, and the voice of God is telling me to kill someone. That's like the most common voice of God to hear in the world. Levinas says, what was remarkable about the Akeda is not that Abraham heard the first voice. It's that he heard the second voice, the voice saying, put down your knife. Don't do anything to that boy. Mm. Right? That voice is much more difficult to hear. And, you know, where Levinas would say is... That is the primacy of the ethical, right? It is responding to Isaac as a human being, first and foremost, outside of any other constructs of what should be. And so I think about all sorts of tensions, both in my life individually, you know, with my family, with my children, with my friends, and in our world more broadly, politically, socially. What would it mean to say, I'm going to put the people first? I'm going to put the relationships first, later for abstract ideas of what should be. First, how do I respond to this human being with a face and the ethical demands of that face? I agree, you know, as a working parent, as someone who tries to balance all sorts of things as you do and lots of us do, it's not always clear what is the thing to prioritize. But as a rough rubric, I'm not sure that we could do much better than saying, okay, first question, what do the most important relationships need? Second question, everything else. Yes, yes. You know, it's reminding me of this beautiful Torah. I forget where it's from at this moment. I'll have to ask my husband, Rabbi John Lehner. But something that he always goes back to, and it's very powerful, which is how can you measure your closeness with God, with the creator? Mm-hmm. It's it, Are you getting closer to human beings? Mm-hmm. Like the question should be, if you're feeling closer to humans, you're getting closer to God. If you're starting to feel alienated and farther away, that's farther from the divine. And that feels such at the heart of what you're speaking to, which is like, if we can make decisions based on that place, or is this going to make this relationship feel more alienating or more othered or more contentious? Or is there a way to 
come close. You know, when you use the word tshuva in the beginning, it was interesting to me because tshuva, right, is to return. So there's some separation inherently. So if if you're becoming farther away, maybe that's the signal that's not the right direction. But if there's a sense of coming closer, even if it's not exactly together, but it's closer, it's one small step closer, That that's maybe the direction to turn. Yeah. I mean, I think the question of how we encounter the divine is a really complicated one for most people. And I think for a lot of people, the questions of belief are centered in, do you believe there's this external voice that can boom down to you from the heavens and tell you to do this or don't do this? And for lots of people, the answer is no. And that's sort of the end of the conversation. And for me, and I so appreciate that teaching you brought, the idea that the divine appears in the face of other people, I think, is absolutely central. I mean, you know, from Levinas in the 20th century, but, you know, even going back to, um, well, going back to the building of the Mishkan, right, in the, in the blueprints that we get for how the tabernacle is supposed to be built, in the center right? At, you know, there's all the gold and the tapestry and all the beautiful stuff in the middle and the middle and it goes center, center. In the middle, right, there are these two figures, these two Kruvim standing, yeah, standing face to face and they're standing face to face and with their wings up, with their arms up. And I interpret this as a sign of surrender, right? Like with your arms up. Mm. And I so often, I mean, we all do come into relationships with our arms crossed, with our armor up, with our defenses up, our defenses of who we think we're supposed to be, of what we have to be, to be worthy of love, to be worthy of respect, of what we don't want to reveal because it won't be who we're supposed to be. And what the Torah is saying, like, no, 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 no. You've got to, you're not going to be there, not just face to face, but face to face in a posture of surrender, a posture of openness. And when you're in that posture of openness and two people maintain that posture of openness, in between them, that's where holiness resides. And so working to say, how can I be in more full relationship with people in my life? How can I come closer to the people in my life? How can I be more open to people in my life and invite them to be more open to me? That is where the divine resides, or at least one of the main places where I encounter that. And so for me, my entire spiritual experience emerges from moments like that moments of true connection with other human beings, not from a voice coming out of the sky. Yes, yes, so beautiful. The imagery of the cherubim and the wings, it's so powerful. And I think it invites us into a question, which is, what does it take to unfold? Like if our normal way of moving through the world, or it can be one of fear and one of closeness and one of self-protection, how do we invite a posture of vulnerability? How do we actually cultivate that and bring that out? And I think your podcast really does draw out that question in so many ways. And I'm excited to hear the rest of the guests that you have coming up for us. I'm also very curious if there has been a relationship in your own life that has been impacted by this work. It's cyclical, actually, because in a lot of ways where all of this work comes from is, well, about 10 years ago, my wife was diagnosed with leukemia. And thank God she's healthy now. She's in great shape now. Thank God for the amazing doctors at Sloan Kettering Hospital. But for a while, we were separated out of medical necessity. She was undergoing bone marrow transplant. We had two young children with germs and all the things that young children have. 
So for the better part of 18 months, we were separated for medical reasons, not because we were looking to be separated. And thank God she was healed and she came home. And when she came home, we had a lot to do to address sort of like the two parallel interrelated traumas we had been through. Her being sick, me having, you know, my wife, my partner, my love, the mother of my children be seriously ill at a very young age. And what wound up happening is that we wound up having conversations. At that point, we'd already been married, had been together for 15 years. We wound up having conversations about some of the structure and foundational issues of our relationship that we had never had before. And our relationship is entirely different because of that. It's like a second marriage, but just to the same person. And that work really only came out of this sort of seasonal moment, this traumatic moment, right? We wouldn't have done that work if we didn't have to, if circumstances didn't really push us towards that, because it's not always fun. It's not always easy, even if the rewards are incredible. And so that experience really shaped how I was thinking about relationships and how I was working with couples who were preparing for marriage themselves and the conversations that they were struggling to have with each other about how to talk, how to forgive. So that life experience fed the learning and the conversations, which then feeds my own life experience and these conversations as well. But that sense of letting our life experience be something that we can work on, be, like you said, something that we can return to. One of the places that I've been thinking a lot about a conversation that I had in the podcast was a conversation I had with Shoshana Bloom, who's a coach in London. And we were looking at a piece from Likutei Maharan, from the teachings of Rebbe Nachman, where he was talking about dancers in a circle and how sometimes people don't want to get in the circle and the different ways somebody may or may not bring them into a circle. And something that came up in that conversation with Shoshana is the idea that the sort of dance that uh, Rebbe Nachman was probably imagining, if you've been to a Jewish wedding or anything like that, is a dance in a circle. And the idea that you go around and around and that somebody might not be ready to join the circle the first time you pass them, and maybe you come back around again, and then you come back around again. And I've been thinking about that sense of return and repair and the circle making its return as a sense of tshuva. In the sense of, in a healthy relationship, right, not a toxic relationship, not an abusive relationship, in a healthy relationship, there will be infinite screw-ups. And the idea that we're always going around and that we can repair when we misstep is vital. I think so often in the relationships I have with the people I love most, I say something and then I regret it, or I don't say something and I regret it. And coming to understand that it's never about that one moment. It's about the ongoing flow. And how do I come back to that difficult moment with my son, with my child, with my partner? How do I come back and say, hey, I wanted to touch on this thing we did yesterday or what happened yesterday. I want to apologize. Beautiful. For some reason in my mind, it's connecting to um, part of the morning prayers where it talks about God renewing the works of creation continually. Yeah. And I think, you know, to extend that to our our relationships, that every day there's a possibility for a new dynamic. And every day, if we are truly made anew, each person might be an, a new person, so to speak, or coming with a new perspective or an evolution of who they were. 
And I think long-term relationships require us to continually accept that we're changing and the person we're in relationship with is changing and like being constant adaptation together. One of the texts that I come to all the time, I have it taped over my desk at home, is a teaching from Rav Cook, the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel, an incredible mystic in Orota Tshuva, the, the, the lights of Tshuva, the lights of return, the lights of repentance. He teaches that this that the secret of Tshuva uh, he says something to the effect of the evil deeds recycle, recur in the world, and that the secret of tshuva is to put a different cast on them, to put a different coloring on the stories that we tell. And like you said, we're in a long-term relationship. We start with these stories about our partner, our children, ourselves, our parents. This is who they are. And then we fit whatever they do into the story we already have. What's that confirmation bias, right? Exactly. That's what, exactly. Yeah. But if we take yeah. seriously what you said from the morning liturgy, to renew every day the works of creation, right? To recognize that that story that I'm telling is yesterday's story. How do I encounter my friend, my partner, my child anew? Encounter who they are today and leave open the possibility of telling a new story so that I'm not retelling yesterday's story and re-getting yesterday's results is absolutely central. It's arguably the central part of, of Judaism, right? This idea yes. of a world based on tshuva. Beautiful. Rabbi, <laughs> what else do you think your listeners should know either about you or about why you think this podcast is important? I think something that is really important is recognizing that even as folks might feel distant from parts of traditional wisdom. There are also human experiences that have been happening for a long time that it is worthwhile to learn what predecessors had to say and experience. Or let me put this slightly differently. I've spent a fair bit of time in Buddhist meditation retreats, and I've never had anybody ask, are you Buddhist? But I've been able to generate tremendous experiences. I've been able to have tremendous experiences learning from meditation practices of Buddhism, whether or not I am Buddhist. And I have spent a fair bit of time in yoga studios and learned from that tradition without over-concern of whether I am Hindu. I think the Jewish tradition has tremendous resources to help us understand how to be in relationship. And those resources, I think, are valuable and important if somebody is Jewish and if somebody's not. There's a lot in there that we can learn from and that can be fruitful for us in figuring out how to live. And we can learn from the experiences of our predecessors and learn from the experiences of our ancestors without being bound by a belief system that we don't want to be. Okay, Brent. Yeah. So my final question for you today is what are your pegs, the moments that you felt proud, embarrassed, and grateful? All right. So... Proud, I would say, is, well, okay, I'm going to give the same, same experience twice. So I'm not a very strong swimmer. That's something my whole life, like I've never been comfortable in the water. And one of the things I've been working on is trying to address that fear. And so I'm proud that for the first time in my life, and it's ridiculous to say this, but for the first time in my life, I jumped into a body of water. I jumped into a lake. Very Nachshon of you. Yes, but... yes. That actually was exactly on my mind, that story of Nachshon walking into the sea and it's splitting and that sense of 
having courage even in the face of fear, which I recognize is ridiculous because children jump into lakes all the time. I just hadn't gotten around to it for, you know, 47 years. So I was proud of confronting that fear or trying to confront that fear. Um, The embarrassment is that following up on that, I've been taking swim lessons. And let's just say I'm somewhat older than most of the other swim students. And so I go to the swim class and, you know, it's like in an Adam Sandler movie where there's a bunch of little kids. But you know what? I feel like it's really of the party's ethos and that it's never too late to start learning. It is never, right. Never too late. (laughs) And, right, and, you know, learning to swim is one of the things that children are supposed to be taught. So, you know, I'm I'm just an old child uh, learning it now. And so, but I am a little bit embarrassed in those moments when I'm the oldest person in the swim class by a few decades. And I'm grateful I'm grateful for the responses we've been getting from this podcast so far, just people responding with things that resonated with them, with things that opened up for them, with ideas for guests, for ideas for texts. And I've been really grateful and gratified to get that response from folks listening to Good Jewish Lover. So that's been something I've been incredibly grateful for. Amazing. Can I add something I'm grateful for? Please. So this is a new role for me and trying to think about what should the impact or role of parties be in North America. It's a big question. And, you know, we're on that journey to figure that out together. You're one of our faculty members. So we're in conversation about that. But I'm very grateful to have faculty like you who are really holding this question of how do we both go deep and hold these texts up and these lineages and go back to our tradition And how do we speak to the daily lives that we have and to the hustle and the chaos and the trauma and, you know, the errands and whatever it is of daily life that we're able to hold both those thoughts at one time and really see where there are so many connection points. So I am so grateful that you're on our faculty and I look forward to continuing to collaborate with you for many moons to come. Fantastic. Me as well. I am am so grateful for this and the opportunity to work with you on this. It's been fantastic. As always, you can find out more about Good Jewish Lover and other opportunities for substantive Jewish learning at pardes.org.il. And you can be in touch with me, Rabbi Brent Spodek, on Instagram and online. My email is brent at pardes.org. Special thanks to Troy Kelly at the Armory in Wellington, New Zealand, Johnny Taylor in Beacon, New York, Jordan Steifman and David Gutbazal and Shani Gross for making Good Jewish Lover happen. And we look forward to learning with you next time how we can love the people in our lives a little bit better on Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships.